Caitlin, I want to know, what was the first steamy scene you ever saw in a movie? You mean besides all the scenes with the beast and Beauty and the Beast? Yeah, way too much hair. Fair enough. It was probably Titanic at age 13, and I definitely saw it three times in the movie theater. Ah, yes. The sweaty hand in the car. Mm-hmm. And then they died. <laughs> so kids, that's why you don't sketch each other's bosoms. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women trying to date without getting skeeved out. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We've talked a lot both on and off the podcast about purity culture, sometimes with a few drinks. We've definitely critiqued the way that purity culture treated our bodies, uh, female sexuality, and our futures. But here's the thing. After purity culture, we're not really sure what a better alternative is. Mainstream sexual ethics, it seems, can be confusing, lacking a script, and quickly changing. Something we've encountered more than a few times when we log on to the dating websites. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Today, we're super pumped to hear from Christine Emba, one of our guests from season one, Woo! about why so many of our peers, especially perhaps fellow women, aren't really happy with modern bedroom behavior. But first, let's go back to those movies and TV shows, because if you're like me, that's actually where you learned a lot about sex, because they weren't teaching it in school much Certainly Mm -hmm. not at church. So I think I got a lot of my ideas about sex from the movies. Definitely. Outside of whatever I heard at youth group about how bad it was, I was getting a lot of other messages. So now it's time to present you with... The The Six six Rules of of Sexy sexy cinema. Cinema. Ooh. Okay, rule number one. Sex is for people who are incredibly attractive Mm -hmm. and for women, thin, young, and almost always white. Pretty Woman comes to mind. Every James Bond movie ever made. Dirty Dancing. (laughs) Hot people have sex. Mm -hmm. To hot music. (laughs) Rule number two. Sex between unhot, read normal people is awkward, but funny. It's always got to be funny. Yes. Like American Pie. A big movie that was popular when I was in high school. I was not actually allowed to see it, but very much about normal teenagers with sexual urges doing very awkward and gross things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Also, all of Judd Apatow's movies are essentially... Yes. Like, normal men... (laughs) Yeah, the women are hot. The women are almost always hot, but normal-looking guys finding themselves in awkward situations. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, those scenes are never as steamy. They're always just kind of goofy. Mm-hmm. Silly. Rule number three. Sex between married people is boring. Mm. One, I would say we don't... I couldn't think of a lot of movies where we see married couples mm-hmm. having sex. Mm-hmm. And when they do, it's like bad or disconnected. And so one of the protagonists is like encouraged or propelled to find sexual excitement outside the marriage, which is where sex is exciting. Yeah. It's usually set up as the foil. Like, it's so bad at home, I went and had this affair. I mean, have you seen a movie or a TV show where married sex is, like, good? Probably. But I'm not thinking of one. And it probably wasn't when I was a kid. Because I feel like there's been more nuanced shows about marriages since since I was a kid, you know? Mm -hmm. Because people recognize this problem. But I can't think of any. Well, I think it's implied that Marge and Homer Simpson connected in the bedroom. That they had steamy sex. (laughs) Steamy yellow cartoon sex. (laughs) All right. Rule number four, not having sex is weird, as in virginity or abstinence. It's almost always painted as sort of weird, undesirable, foreign, strange, bizarre choice, or because you're not hot enough. Or you're like a weirdly religious person. (laughs) Which I feel like was always, yes, like came up in church culture. Like they were trying to make virginity cool again <laughs> to counteract this idea that, like, oh, virgins are dorks, yeah, you know, right, right, right. But usually, like, at least in the movies, those ultra religious people not having sex were shown to be very, like, repressed. Yeah, they had their own problems. Yeah. Rule number five. <laughs> How do I put this delicately? Even though we see... So in the movies, we see a lot of body, but the sex is very clean and smooth and not messy. And Absolutely. Not- it's The mechanics of it are, are rarely shown. <laughs> and it's, you know, there's a lot of strategically placed, like, arms and pillows. And it all just goes very smoothly. It's choreographed. Yeah. Usually there's a a mutual and simultaneous orgasm and everyone is just really happy. And also hot music. (laughs) I'm thinking Top Gun, that iconic song, You Take My Breath Away. It's like there's a lot shown and yet so much left to the imagination. Right. Rule number six. Finally, we had to have six because we had to have the alliteration of six, sexy, and cinema. Of course. People don't talk after sex. Nope, that's true. Like, there's never any, there's not, we usually don't see like, okay, but what happens after in the relationship? Do they have to communicate about things? Besides some guy being like, that was awesome. Yeah, there's nobody's (laughs) like, I'm going to go to the bathroom and brush my teeth. There's never like, uh, uh, you're pulling the covers off that's my side of the bed to sleep on. Like there's never any of that. And there's no debrief. There's no debrief and there's no rebrief. Get it? We get an initial debrief, (laughs) but then no debrief. (laughs) (laughs) The pants come off, but they don't go back on. (laughs) Okay. So now that we've covered the six rules of sexy cinema, it's probably the case that the movies weren't altogether helpful in helping us really understand what human sexuality is like. It turns out they were fictional in more than one way. Mm, true that. 
So if not purity culture and if not sex according to the movies, what is the story about sex that we find the most compelling? I find myself asking that question a lot at this time in my life. So I'm glad that we're doing a podcast about it. And you're not nervous at all? Very. Well, we won't be alone. We will be joined by Christine Emba. Christine is a columnist for The Washington Post, and she's the author of the new book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. I think there's sort of pluses and minuses. I think purity culture actually did teach something meaningful and important, which is that sex is meaningful and important and is not just like two people high-fiving each other, but with their genitals. Our conversation with Christine is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Get the dope on the Pope! And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. You can also email us whenever you want at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you and we will reply. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Today's guest, our first repeat guest, besides our moms, Karen and Sharon, and Ben DeHart, a.k.a. Hot Priest, is Christine Emba. Hey, Christine. Welcome back. Hey, Christine. Hi. Thanks for having me back on. So exciting to be here. So one of the things you know early on in your book is that we're in this time of contradiction where we're seeing sex and talking about sex more than ever, and yet fewer and fewer people are actually having sex. What has caused the so-called sex recession? Yeah, that's a great question um, and an interesting phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that we don't totally know. There are a lot of different theories for why this is happening. Obviously, the pandemic uh, did not help over the past two years. (laughs) Sure. Wasn't wasn't a sexy time. (laughs) It wasn't a sexy time. Um, But I mean, it contributed to, you know, loneliness to Mm -hmm. finding it harder to meet other people fewer acquaintances. But then there are also theories that it has to do with distractions, more time spent streaming TV and on social media. And then also just sort of fear, whether it's fear of bad behavior. So the sex researcher Debbie Herbnick has theorized that there's much more discussion among young people of like being startled by sexual acts um, that happen in their encounters, and then maybe perhaps being shy of having sex because, you know, they don't know what's going to happen to them. Um, and, you know, a sort of sense of amidst all of this supposed sexual freedom that we have, just not knowing how to act, Mm -hmm. not knowing what exactly you should be doing to get into a relationship and stay in one, because it is in relationships where people actually tend to have sex. Right. I mean, I think there's a narrative out there that like young single free people who are having sex with maybe multiple partners are having a lot more sex. But the reality is that people in committed relationships, generally speaking, have more sex than those who are not in committed relationships. 
accurate. Yes. In part, it feels a little bit like there's a lot of confusion about what you're supposed to want, what this relationship is, what that relationship is, and what it isn't. And in some ways, difficult to communicate those things because maybe everybody's either making up assumptions or coming at relationships without really a lot of clarity about what they want or what they want from the other person. Yeah, I think that does. I think that seems right. I mean, I feel like one of the things that came up again and again in the conversations with women that I had for the book was that they feel like they should be asking for one thing, but what they really want is something different. They maybe actually want a relationship. You know, they want to have one partner, not to be constantly experimenting with many. Let's talk about open relationships. Let's. (laughs) (laughs) If you are on the dating apps and you're seeking either a a date or a partner, whatever you're seeking, you're going to come across people who have in their profile, either ethically Mm non-monogamous or in an open relationship, but works open to exploring things outside the relationship. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a personal question, but here we are. Would you ever date someone who is also in a relationship with somebody else or multiple other people? I personally would not. (laughs) Um, Because I think of relationships as a space for commitment between two people, I suppose. Um, And like, that's what I'm looking for. I've also noticed the profusion and it's often sort of stuck at the end of someone's (laughs) profile. And like, Oh, by the way, (laughs) you've gotten this far. Yeah. Yeah, With like the, like, uh, ENM Mm -hmm. or something like just the initial so that you Mm -hmm. almost skip over it. And then you're like, Oh wait, hang Mm -hmm. on. Um, But again, so many of the, women and even men I talk to um, in interviews for this book, like I see this all the time and I'm not into it, but I feel like I should be. Mm -hmm. Every week there's an article in the New York Times about how polyamory is sort of the next (laughs) level of sex that we should all aspire to. And I've heard, yeah, and I've heard a lot of like arguments that this is really the next step of liberation out of patriarchy that women, that a big part of, you know, the patriarchal hierarchy has been set up uh, with one man kind of owns a woman and that this is the next step for women of getting out of that. Well, I think one of the things that our culture idealizes, you know, in sort of a liberal, not in the political sense, but sort of liberal, democratic and capitalist society is the idea of Mm -hmm. freedom, of having options and being able to keep your options sort of open. And committed relationships and marriage are kind of by definition, the closing off of options, Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? You choose to be with one person, you're in one relationship. And so if you hold the idea of freedom as kind of the greatest good, then of course you're thinking like, how can I make these closed relationships freer? Like how can I continue to give myself options to meet other people, options to sleep with someone else? And in that sense, I guess polyamory is the next step in that direction. Mm -hmm. But There's also something to be said for commitment and for dependency and, you know, Mm -hmm. building one thing with another person that lasts for a long time. And it sometimes feels like we're being pushed to trade that for some nebulous idea of freedom that doesn't actually serve us in the long run. I wonder if this is just me psychologizing all of my 29-year-old peers in Brooklyn But when I think back to my 20s, the opportunity to date lots of people and to have those experiences was fun and exciting. But 
I do wonder if some of this is like getting old (laughs) and thinking about like what you really want at the end of the day. I don't think that polyamory is as like widespread as maybe the New York Times think pieces make it out to be. (laughs) That seems right to me too. And also I think that COVID, right, that the pandemic has maybe pushed people to think about these questions a little bit more too. Mm -hmm. Like it's one thing to be exploring your options when you're able to sort of like run around Brooklyn and meet as many people as you Mm -hmm. want. But then when you're stuck in your house for two years thinking about like your impending mortality, (laughs) I think a lot of people Uh come out of that being like, whoa, what do I actually want Mm -hmm. in real life now? And how do I get that? Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a moment of hope. One thing you talk about, uh, you observe is that there's been, you know, in a lot of ways heightened since the Me Too movement, this conversation about um, consent and that that is like the core fundamental rule of our modern sexual ethic is as long as there's consent, like it's, it's okay. Um, but you say that's, that's not enough. And what else do you think? What is, why? And what else do we need? Yeah. So one of the, I think one of the core messages in rethinking sex is, is exactly that, that consent is a totally necessary baseline. Mm -hmm. Like you, you have to have consent before you have sex with someone but consent is a floor. Mm-hmm. It's not a ceiling. And I think if you ask anyone, um, anyone reasonable, you know, they will say that they want more from sex than being able to say, I did not commit a felony <laughs> against this person. <laughs> um, like, that's a really low bar. Um, and I think we, we all want more than that. We need to know, we need to be able to hold ourselves to a higher standard. Uh, we want to know how to care for someone how to not just have sex with someone without criminally assaulting them, but also how to have sex ethically and morally in a broader sense, how to treat people well and with the human dignity that they deserve. Consent is like a really good sort of legal barrier to keep you out of the most serious trouble, but it doesn't take us anywhere close to where we need to go and also leaves so many things out of the equation that we still need to think about. In your book, you talk to a lot of women who say, I didn't say, I didn't say no. I said yes to this thing that looking back, I don't know that I actually wanted. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to communicate that. And why did I feel a kind of pressure or social script to go along with something that I didn't actually want? Right. Absolutely. I think that this is one of the things that consent leaves out that we also need to ask ourselves you know, not just did this person say yes, but did they actually Mm -hmm. mean it? Did they say yes for the right reasons? Am I thinking about what is good for them and what they want and not just what I'm getting out of it? And then how does the sex that I'm having, how do the things that we're agreeing to or that I'm asking someone to agree to, what ramifications do they have on me morally, on on them ethically, on society at large? Like what kind of world are we creating? by engaging in things in certain ways. So again, it's it's about bigger things than just, is it a yes or is it a no? Um, sex happens between two people, but often the effects radiate outwards and they also affect people for much longer than, you know, the specific moment in which it's happening. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that this is why purity culture 
wanted to make it very black and white is that so that you don't get in a situation where like you don't know if somebody said yes for the right reasons. You don't know if you said yes for the right reasons. You don't know if you said yes because of a social script, as Caitlin said, or because, you know, you're 17 and you really want this person to like you. And, you know, and so in some ways, purity culture was like some guardrails around that and just like, let's make it very black and white. Um, but we've also been working to dismantle purity culture. So um, in what ways do you think like, like was purity culture onto something um, in, in helping people have those guardrails? What, in what ways does sex have like these spiritual consequences that require more than just black and white, yes, no kind of things? Yeah. So I think we talked about this a we little did. bit the last time <laughs> I was on the show too, but I think there, there are sort of pluses and minuses. I think purity culture actually did teach something meaningful and important, which is that sex um, is meaningful and important and is not just like two people high-fiving each other, but with their <laughs> genitals. Um, Ouch! But that it actually, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't even sound pleasant, no. right? Um, <laughs> but that it actually affects people, um, both physically and, and spiritually. I think one of the things that purity culture kind of failed us on in some ways was not giving us more context mm -hmm. than that um, and not really talking to us that much about, you know, what a relationship should look like. How do we really love each other in certain ways? And also just what is sex? Like, how do we understand mm -hmm. it? It's one thing to be like, no, don't do mm -hmm. this. It's another thing to be like, this is what this is. Let me explain what's meaningful around it in a specific way so that you understand it and make it clear what's going mm -hmm. on. Um, I think purity culture, as as preached by some and not all churches, was a lot of don't do the mm -hmm. thing. <laughs> yeah. But then Which... <laughs> you don't get that much context. I'm like, what? why not? Right. What, what even is the thing? How should I think about this as a, apart from something that's mm -hmm. forbidden? You've got this book coming out. Um, and so you're going to have to do tons of interviews about sex. Um, so I am, I really kind of want to just know like why you wrote it. Like what made you think like, this is what I want to commit a year and a half or two years of writing. And then a bunch of time doing interviews on like, why, why put yourself through that? Why was this topic so important to you to write on right now? <laughs> okay. That is a, that's a great question. And one that I've been <laughs> asking myself actually, <laughs> um, Honestly, I feel like that's how editors get these first-time writers. Like, anybody who'd ever written a book before would not be like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to sex. I'm going to fix sex. That's my project. Seems chill and cool. Like, no, they would be too smart to do that. But I'd never written a book before. And so I was like, oh, this is like an interesting academic project um, post Me Too. Like, there's so much conversation happening. I'll just dive right in. And only later on was I like, wow, in writing this book, um, I have to think about mm -hmm. how I think about mm -hmm. sex, think about my own past experiences, like really rethink sex, not just mm -hmm. as an academic concern philosophically, but also in my own life. Um, and my editor, you know, when I have, I have complained about this a little bit, um, have pointed out that like this this like became more personal and more intense than I might have mm -hmm. imagined at first. Um, she was like, you know, I think that authors write 
the book they mm-hmm, need to read. Mm-hmm. And I think in the Me Too moment in you know, 2017, 2018, there was so much conversation around, um, you know, we can say that Harvey Weinstein is a bad guy. He didn't get consent. Like there were these obvious cases, mm-hmm. right? But then there was all this conversation happening around Catfish right. and Aziz Ansari and, you know, these not non-consensual, but still really mm-hmm. bad mm-hmm. experiences that people were having. And then even among my friends and the women I knew, there was this undercurrent of, you know, we're liberated, but we're kind of miserable. <laughs> um, and rethinking sex, I think, was my attempt to just sort of unpack that, try and figure out what was going on in our sexual culture that made things feel so mm-hmm. off for people? And how do we move the conversation to a place where we're talking about what could fix it? You know, not just the obvious, don't be like Matt Lauer, but how should we live in our mm-hmm. everyday lives? How do we treat each other? What does sex really mean to us? And, you know, as a thing in itself, how do we talk about that? I think I wanted the words for it, but I also wanted rethinking sex to hopefully move the conversation forward Mm -hmm. a little bit and leave some room for people to critique, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of uncritical sex positivity and the fantasies Mm -hmm. of what liberation looks like and what sex should look like. Maybe as a final question, how have you responded or plan to respond to readers who say that your approach to sex and some of the holes that you're poking in the dominant sexual narrative is sex negative? that you're not being sex positive in some of your critiques. So I talk a lot about the history of the feminist movement and the sexual revolution in rethinking sex. And so to those people, I think I would say that they might have the wrong understanding of what sex positivity Mm -hmm. originally meant. Um, The whole point of kind of the feminist revolution and even the sexual revolution was to show that women were important and their needs and desires were as important as those of men. And in the modern day, it almost seems like we've kind of moved towards not just women are important, but women should be like the Mm. worst kind of man, (laughs) like to succeed sexually. What that actually looks like is, you know, not women's liberation, but having a Mm -hmm. play girl to go along Mm -hmm. with play boy. And so I would ask them, you know, what they what they think is sex positive about the culture right now and also why we shouldn't be able to unpack some of the assumptions Mm -hmm. that we have there's such a thing as you know uncritical sex positivity where you know you're just like sex 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 it's good but that doesn't leave any room for people to complain people to critique the norms people to almost create that culture for themselves instead of just taking what's Mm -hmm. fed to them that's great boom yes well thank you (laughs) for writing the book that you needed to read (laughs) and that we needed to read and hopefully lots of other people who need to read it will read it as well yes thank you christine thank you absolutely thanks for having me okay so roxy what is the weirdest thing you would say you've ever dealt with on a date in this realm of human sexuality? Uh, um, actually, I feel like this isn't weird. This is actually the normal, which I think is weird, which mm-hmm. is that a lot, and I mean the majority of first dates I've gone on 
that have been on the apps, the guy has gone in for a kiss at the end. Right. That's just wild to me that like there's an expectation there for a first kiss on a first date of a person you have never met before. And I don't know. I don't know when that became the norm. Well, I'm kind of surprised that that's your answer, because in some ways that feels more respectful than what I might have expected, like men being you know, pressuring or inviting themselves over to your apartment or yeah. like immediately turning things more sexual. But I think to your point, it is the idea that like you're initiating physical contact with someone you've known for like two hours and who could be not a great person. Yeah. And like the reality is, is that a lot of those guys I haven't heard from again or haven't talked to again, I have also not reached out. (laughs) And it creates, as Christine was talking about, I think this is what made me think of it, um, is that it creates this moment where you have to decide whether you consent or not really quickly Mm. with someone you don't know very well and you don't know how they're going to take it. And, you know, I have, I have both just gone ahead and kissed someone that I wasn't really all that keen to kiss just to not have an awkward an awkward conversation or mm-hmm. like have to make the like have to make the move away you know and then say why and then I've also like said I don't want to and felt really weird and it was a hard weird conversation to have I have a follow-up question mm-hmm. on average mm-hmm. do these gentlemen ask can I kiss you good night or no. would you say in general oh they, they just go mm-hmm. in for it okay and do you turn your cheek if you don't want it or do you say uh I've tried I've tried different things um you know like I've taken a step back and said I'm not comfortable doing that on a first date but I really enjoyed our time together you know something like that one time I said I thought I was getting a cold sore which <laughs> for some reason the fact that I thought you were going to say I was getting a cold oh, no, we're cold sore, which is just like immediately turns people off is like, yeah because it's it's like oral and easily contagious yeah. and like I basically have a germ I want to give you in my I mouth herpes so. of the mouth and I was like to be sure you had a kiss exactly I oh, was I'm really not interested that. in that guy so it worked. You're like, what's the what's the worst communicable disease <laughs> I could think of that he couldn't like prove? Uh-huh. Well, yeah, it, it, it's effective. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just and like I said, like, honestly, the most recent date I went on, like it was I, I just ended up kissing him and I didn't I didn't really want to. But a lot of like what Christine said is like what I felt in the moment is like, I just want to go home were like on a subway like he was like he'd walked me to the subway platform and that felt weird and the train was like literally coming and it just was like I was just like oh okay the least sexy setting one could find (laughs) in New York for a kiss and Um, I I have not texted him and he has not texted me since so yeah I mean to to your point and something we talked about with Christine is it seems like many women do end up technically consenting Mm -hmm. to things and then later feeling like is that actually what I wanted? Not having the tools or the framework in the moment to say, what do I actually want out of this encounter or this relationship with this person? Like not just being so mindful of what he wants from the moment, because obviously if someone's going in to kiss you, you're very aware of like, he has this expectation that we are going to kiss, but being, having the internal resources to really step back and ask, what do I mm-hmm. want out of this? It seems hard for a lot of women. I would imagine in part because despite 
the advances of feminism, we are still culturally taught to be mindful of how other people feel uh, yeah. and to be deferential to to men, you know? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I I know this about myself and, you know, I don't always, I don't think it's necessarily the healthiest impulse, but I do, I am constantly like gauging how does the other person feel on this date more than I'm gauging how I'm feeling on these dates. Like, it's hmm. just, I, I don't know why that is. I usually get home and wonder, like, did that person have a good time? And I don't go, did I have a good time? Wait, really? Yeah. Is that with your friends as well? Yeah. I mean, when I got home, for example, from my recent birthday party, I was like, I hope everyone had a really good time. Like, oh, I worried about that, you know. And I think, mm. you know, and I yeah. think most of the time, like when I get home from somebody's birthday party, I'm like, I hope the birthday person had a really good time at their birthday party. <laughs> so in none of these circumstances, are you like, did I like that? How did I feel about Not that? Not my immediate impulse. Yeah. Yeah. So I really liked the metaphor. It's like a house metaphor that we were talking about. The consent is a floor, not a ceiling. Yes. I think that's a really good way to think about it. So if we're building this house, what else Mm -hmm. is in the house? Like what else are we looking for besides consent? What is in between the floor and the ceiling? Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess we should all be aiming for the ceiling, but I do think that this, again, not the floor and not the ceiling. But I mean, I think enjoyment is part of it. Mutual enjoyment. I'm not going to stop there. I don't think that's enough either. But I think that that is part of it. And I do think that is really hard to gauge and much more subjective. But I think that's part of the difficulty of decorating this house, if you will, is that, um, you know, people's preferences are subjective. So it's difficult to say like what is enjoyment, but I think if you are not enjoying it, then it's not working. It's not Mm -hmm. good. Yeah, (laughs) which feels so basic on one hand, like so obvious to say, but then so many women would say, I went along. I I basically went along to get along. Yeah, and maybe like did it for different reasons than enjoyment, Mm -hmm. like to keep a relationship going or to, you know, make Mm -hmm. the other person happy or to just not rock the boat or whatever. I guess no one will be surprised that I'm going to sound like an old fuddy-duddy. <laughs> I think that's been hinted at throughout this, except for the aforementioned bosoms. For me, commitment mm-hmm. is, I just think it's something that I want. Mm-hmm. I think especially having had dating encounters or really romantic encounters mm-hmm. where commitment was not on the table at mm-hmm. all. And in some ways, I think I needed to. Yeah, I, I needed to get that out of my system. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> uh, you know, we've talked in season one about purity culture and having to kind of mm-hmm. almost rebel against that in my late twenties after a series of romantic disappointments and feeling like God didn't uphold God's part of the bargain, and I'm just going to do my own thing. And also, I'm like 29, mm-hmm. and I just need to go off script for a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, in some ways, developmentally, I think that was. It was understandable for sure. And it could have, I think it was important in part to realize, okay, I see what else is out there. And I don't think it's actually what I want right. in coming to a place of choosing that rather than going along with, well, my parents right. and my pastor and my friends all said that I should do this. So that's what I'm going to do. But really internalizing a sense of what I want is to have in the long run, like a, ro- a romantic connection that is within the context of commitment. Does that make me sound like a fuddy-duddy? 
I don't think so. I think I think the fact that again something that kind of seems fairly normal um, could make you sound like a fuddy duddy or could make you sound strange or bizarre. Like I think it wasn't mm-hmm. until not that long ago that a statement like that might sound like oh, mm. what? Mm-hmm. I think it's you know I so no I don't think it's I don't think it makes you sound like a fuddy duddy, but I may not be the best person to ask. Yeah, I mean it sounds like what we're talking about is intentionality Mm -hmm. and interrogating our own desires and then coming into situations, making decisions from that self-examination, which maybe is a long-winded, convoluted way of saying just having boundaries and keeping them. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe it is. But But also maybe like, yeah, like setting the boundaries out of a place of, you know, something that you truly value and not because society told you or your church told you or your parents told you or whatever, what those boundaries should be. Yeah. And it's hard because the messages that we got around sex being inherently shameful, Mm -hmm. our bodies and desires being inherently shameful. Like we got those at a really young age and those go really deep. And so it's hard to kind of rewrite those really deep narratives with Mm -hmm. adult narratives. Um, But it seems to me that true sex positivity is about people being empowered to make choices Mm -hmm. in their sexual lives that are in accordance with every other part of their life and to have freedom from others' expectations. (laughs) And so if that is the choice that really works the best for you, who's to say that's sex negative? Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's it's so much more holistic to be able to say I to be able to connect with your emotions as well as the physicality of sex. And when it's not feeling good or it, you know, when you think to yourself, I do want intimacy like that to to have to repress those things that also feels sex negative. So it doesn't sound like we can think of any movies or TV shows that capture what we want. Market opportunity. (laughs) In a romantic relationship. But in a future episode, maybe we'll come up with our own six rules of real sex, not six rules of sexy cinema. Maybe we'll script our ideal sexy scene. But if we've accomplished anything, it is that we are talking about sex. And that was something that Christine wants more of because of this book that people are actually talking about Mm -hmm. their experiences and what they truly want so mission kind of accomplished i can't i'm I'm looking for a sexy pun i'm looking for a sexy joke here you mean missionary accomplished let's put it to bed saved by the city is a religion news service production the producer is jay woodward and the consulting editor is paul o'donnell chaz Rousseau put together our look and martin fowler wrote our theme music we are caitlin Beatty and roxy stone thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening.